Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's very special all-star episode of Risk, you'll hear David Koechner. The thing that helps you ejaculate even more is you pretend that that nurse has cracked the door just this much (laughs) and is watching you. That and more from Joe LaTrulio, Jason Biggs, Ilana Glazer, and Sashir Zameda. But before that, you might recall Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. And I mentioned that Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and commented on just how easy it is to learn to code with the One Month video courses. But the One Month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build your first web app in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you. In the One Month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. Enrollment is typically $99. But if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll build your first web app. Now here's the show.
This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the new Gary Burton Quartet behind me now. And this is the 200th episode of Risk. It's an all-star episode, and by the end of it, you will have heard the 643rd true story that we have shared with the world. If you are new to the podcast, Risk is the show where nothing is inappropriate. Nothing is too X-rated or horrifying or heartbreaking or wonderful. Risk is that one place you can turn where we celebrate real life. Warts and all. And there's about five or six best of Risk episodes that are perfect for newcomers, so be sure to check those out too. In just a bit, we're going to hear from a dear old friend of mine, a fellow member of the old sketch comedy group, The State. You might also know him from Reno 911 and now Brooklyn 99. He is, of course, Joe Latrulio. And you'll notice I couldn't help but break out laughing at the end of his story, even though I usually try to cut myself out of the radio-style stories on the show. Uh, I just couldn't help it with Joe. But first, we're going to start with one of the co-stars of Broad City on Comedy Central. Not just one of the co-stars, but one of the co-creators of Broad City. She has such a unique and wonderful and... Ah, I just love her voice so much. This is Ilana Glazer at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call Posh Party Poo Pants. My story is from like November, so it's not like, oh, my old college. It's like, I just did this thing. So, um, just like, there's like a bunch of disclaimers headed your way. So, get ready for them. So, uh, it was early November uh, 2012, and um, I was feeling good. I was high on life. Just kidding about like, Lahayam, whatever. Um, I was high on life. I was feeling good. Um, you know, business and personal, that's kind of how I like split things or try to see them. And business-wise, things were good. This show Kevin was just talking about, me and my writing partner got to film our pilot. And she's like my wife, my writing partner. And this was like our first baby, you know? We were like fucking elated. We, we were like exhausted like people with babies are or something, I, I hear. Uh, but we were elated, like people with babies supposedly are, whatever. Personally, I was like doing well. I'm not really like a boyfriend kind of girl, but I was like approaching this like sixth month, which is again, supposedly something they, like with a capital T say is like a thing, you know? And it was like going great. And I'm still dating him, so this, you know, you can relax. <laughs> Uh, so, um, it was like this six month where it was like, oh, this is like legit. And we're like making a decision here. And I'm like feeling good about this decision. It's not like, fuck, fuck, fuck. You know what I mean? It was like, dope. Let's fucking do this. Let's keep going. You know? And like, I, um, 
I don't know. I, you know, I'm sort of like, why buy the cow when you can get the suck like the milk out of the dick thing? You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, um, there was a reason to like buy the cow. It's a gross like saying. That's not like a cool. But like, there was like a reason to date this person. He's like super dope, super like emotionally intelligent and intuitive, and um, I like brag about him. You know, like normally it's like you're a, a douche, but I'm like this guy's wonderful because it's just like straight up good stuff. So it's like, all right, I'm going to fucking brag about it. So business and personal and then my body, me and my body was feeling good because I, um, I, I like, I'm pretty sure this is a Jewish thing, but I um, like get really nauseous. I'm very sure this is a Jewish thing actually. I get very um, nauseous, like eating like a full, like, you know, good old American meal, like a burger and fries and I'm like I want to die I want to like take a laxative get a colonic and die like I realized after college like I can't do that shit anymore because I want to die and it's like I can't keep smoking weed during the day to battle the nausea I gotta make a difference you know uh, a change so I started eating like paleo and bitch if like I'm, I'm not like um, nauseous you know I'm not I'm choosing to smoke weed as though I had like, you know, like cancer patients smoke weed. Like it wasn't that, that bad, but I, um, it was also like an excuse, but you know, I was like feeling good. I was like feeling good. And I was like, fuck you bread. And then I would like eat cookies at night, whatever. But you know, it's like you try to get it like 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, whatever. Um, so I was feeling good back in early November, you know, like my shit don't stank, but, um, not like aggressively, not like compared to others, like a douche, but like relative to myself. My like shit was smelling good. Um, so my friend Eden, my best friend, my BFF of 15 years, um, we, and I'm 16, no I'm not. Um, she had recently started working as a physician's assistant. Y'all know physician's assistants? They like do undergrad and then they do two years of like work work. It's not like class and working in a setting. They just like work in a setting. She is a surgeon. She's a physician's assistant surgeon. And it's like been so interesting along the way to compare like a set path versus a not set path, like in comedy. Like, you know, in college I was like, I don't fucking care. And she's like, yeah, I care. I'm like getting good grades so I can like get a good job. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. Um, <laughs> and now that we're like, now that we've been like out of school, you know, it's interesting to see the set path like, oh, a salary and like, health benefits and a 401k, which is a thing. Um, I get like money in chunks like a gangster. And, um, you know, I'm, I like Obamacare onto my parents' shit because I'm like under 26 and we're in New York State. So it's like, you know, so she's a physician's assistant at Sloan Kettering. This bitch cuts into titties like a psycho, but she's paid to do it. Like that is fucking crazy she buffalo bills that shit gets paid for it and she's like a fucking genius she like slaps like a bat i mean she's like gentle i'm sure but like she like puts like a bag into a titty and like sews it up and it's like bitch you just like gave someone new tits she like tattoos nipples you know like for like um women who've gotten a mastectomy it's like you give people like new nipples and shit it's like she explained to me you you fold it like origami to make it like look like like a nipple, I'm like, yeah, my, you know, brilliant moment last week was working through my masturbation material, you know what I mean? Like, so fucking dumb. She and her, like the couples, her peers, like couples, you know, she says, God, everybody has a fucking engagement ring. I'm like, yeah, my peers who are couples go to 
free open mics together and they sign up for a list. It's like our worlds are like really, uh, at least my world is Bobo. Um, and hers is like legit adult people who are like, I'd like to go on vacation. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, what is that? What do you mean? You know? But um, so my friend Eden asked me if I wanted to go to a champagne party. No idea what this fucking means. Her coworker, this woman who also cuts into titties, um, dates a financier. And I feel like if you like have to say somebody's occupation in a French accent, that's like a different level, you know? <laughs> so the girl's boyfriend is a financier, and he like um, does these parties or something like makes a big like thing a big stink out of them and uh you know what i like to go so i was like this is cool like eden also had just like gotten her own boyfriend so it was like cool white straight white couples meeting and hanging got it cool let's do it you know what i mean so i was like okay let's do this let's have like a night out whatever you know people do also uh champagne like i'm not i'm more of a, a weed smoker and alcohol i like puke and like uh need to be like carried um like very quickly um but champagne is like my favorite because it's like distracting from the fact that you're like putting poison in your body and um i find it easy to ingest um so i was like picturing this party to be like hot fucking like rich bitches everybody's wearing like black and nude in my mind and like fucking spike chokers like the 90s you know and it like ends in an orgy and like me and my boyfriend are like pick us up like a football game and they're like you're so hot you know you're so hot and we're like cool you know everybody's like really hot black and nude um so I like plotted over my outfit for um a couple of days I like thought it together so I didn't even have to try it on you know I just like knew the outfit so it was oh I'm so embarrassed to say this but you know I'm doing it we're here uh so it was like a like a six-year-old mesh like baby leotard from American Apparel. <laughs> and then I wore like a, um, like gold, like I have Tigo Biddies. So like this like gold, like sort of cascades down my like tits. And I'm like, ain't no thang, bitch. You know what I mean? And I had like a fitted tux jacket. So it was like not a real shirt. Okay. And um, like my nipples were like just out of sight. It was very risky, but I was like, I'm with a dude. I'm not going to get raped. You know what I mean? Like Let's try the shit. On top of that, I wore a wig. I was like, nobody's gonna know me. I'm like an old gay dude inside of my body, so I'm gonna choose to wear a wig. Um, so uh, we get there, and it is really a lot of um, tight-ass uh, white people. They're not um, like Azealia Banks, you know, like black with like long weaves, like I thought it was gonna be like at all. It's like sort of like starchy button downs and like the host he was not white but he like made everybody take their shoes off before you enter the apartment which like makes you like a suburban wasp I think so he like became that and I was like oh I'm just like a hoe you know like very quickly like pretty legit so there's like free champagne and Eden's so sweet she's like a connector trying to like you know connect oh this is my friend conversations and I'm like hi Goal. I'm like not good at like parties and like comedians have like social problems, you know? So it was like, it was, it wasn't happening. So I was like, okay, let's just like drink this shit and check out the balconies. There were like four balconies and it wasn't, it was, it wasn't new construction. It was like in Chinatown surrounded by other buildings. So it wasn't like, 
you know, when you're like, this shit might fall because it was made three months ago. This was like, oh, this is from like the fucking 20s. And like, you know, it, it was beautiful. So we were just um, smoking on the balconies and trying to chill the champagne effect, but that wasn't happening. So we're like, you know, in the middle of this room and there's like yapping uh, among like validated, like real adult people. And I was like, I'm going to sit in Mabu's lap. Um, You'll see in a moment why this is important, but like it wasn't like tush sitting, it was like fetal position, like I'm so drunk. <laughs> and I'm like sort of sitting here and like my like ass is like very relaxed. And I was like, I gotta take a shit. And um, I, I can't walk, you know, at this point. So I chose semi-consciously to ship my leotard. <laughs> Um, take it in, you know what I mean? Like, just take that in. And um, it's, like, totally cool if it takes you, like, a moment, you know? Um, so I did. I, like, shit my pants, but I wasn't wearing pants. It was a leotard. Um, and I was like, I can walk now. I'll be right back. And I, like, went to the... I was like, eat it, eat it! And I, like, go to the bathroom, and I was like, bitch, I just shit my pants, bitch. And she's like, <laughs> like, honestly, like a 25-year-old, you know what I mean? She's like are you joking? You shit your, like, diapy, like a baby, you know? And, um, but luckily, I, I gotta say, wasn't that bad. Um, this paleo shit, pooping like a dog, my friend. I'm pooping like a dog. Took a little piece of tissue, removed it, put it in the toilet, and I was like, I might as well have pooped in the toilet pretty much, you know what I mean? Like, a big girl would, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, so I sort of like took that in myself, you know what I mean? I was like, I'm a person who shits their pants as an adult. Uh, and so the next morning I tell my dude, I, so I was like, I'm gonna wait three weeks. I like arbitrarily made up this number. I was like, I'm gonna wait three weeks to tell him. And then in the morning I was like, dude, I shit my pants last night. And he was like, yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me, you know? And I was like, cool, 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 cool. Sexy. Um, no, it wasn't. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm, like, proud. Like, dignity is not my, like, main thing, you know? So I wouldn't say I'm, like, proud, but I did think it was very funny, you know? That, I like, that part I like. And it was very, it was funniest for Eden. That was, like, the best. <laughs> she was like, no way! You know, that was, like, uh, that was the best part and I was like, this is a really like New York comedy moment at the very least and possibly at the most. And while I like entered there with like a like costume on, I left ironically <laughs> feeling the least full of shit. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you. Good night. I probably went off uh, and ate something I wasn't supposed to. And as I'm walking to the press room, I, know, I think I gotta, you know, pass a little gas here. So I'm walking by myself. Who's gonna know? Only a little something extra came out. You and pooped in your pants. I, I pooped my pants. Uh, not horribly, but enough that I was panicking. So I got to the restroom of the press room, threw out the underwear. You know, and just went commando. And what did that tell you? 
It told me that I've got to be very vigilant as to what I eat. I grew up down in South uh, Florida. I was born in New York. I moved down to Florida when I was five years old. My time in New York when I was five or under was very innocent and very fun. I was playing in the snow uh, in Ozone Park and I felt very safe there. I would go down to Florida and it's even, you know, more of a Disneyland. And, you know, I grew up watching movies of the 70s, many of which took place in New York. So, New York in the 70s was a very, very rough, risky, dangerous place. The Taking of Pelham 123 was one of my favorite movies. And, you know, these guys were just tough and, you know, looked like they could bite the head off a chicken and not think anything of it, you know? Both the cops and the criminals. Like, the, all the criminals seemed to be like cool black guys in leather like jackets, and then all the cops were like Italian, Irish, or. You know, in the case of taking a poem, one, two, or three, Walter Matthau. Do I look like I'm kidding? This was the image I had of the rough and tough New York of the 70s. Well, that stayed with me. I go to New York uh, to go to college at NYU. You know, not that I really believe that that's the case with cops and, and criminals in New York, but that image, that idea of this dangerous place was still in my head. You know, it was a place that was filled with garbage, and in particular Times Square, with its porno theaters and its, uh, the pimps and the, and the muggers that would come out and be, hey man, you know, it was really, really sketchy. So here I am at like, I guess, 22 walking up 6th Avenue towards Times Square at 3 in the morning after a night of drinking. I was still fairly new to walking the streets of New York that late, that inebriated. I, I, I wasn't really on edge because I was so drunk. I just was in my own head thinking about whatever had happened to me just you know, at the bar or whatever. There's not a lot of people out on the street. There's a few stragglers, certainly no one that looks like me. I'm getting closer to Times Square, and I realize that, you know, I should maybe keep my eyes open. This could be somewhat dangerous. Be careful, Joe. Be careful, Joe. The first thing I remember was being terrified that I was shot. It hurt, it was sharp, stinging pain. And it totally took me by surprise. And I screamed. I don't even remember hearing it, I just know that I did it because I felt not just my head, but this gasp and sound of air escape me. Suddenly, it's all happening. The nightmare of being caught in Times Square, in a dangerous environment, finally was coming to fruition. And I immediately went to my head, grabbed my head to wait to feel the blood and brain that was going to be pouring out of my head. 
it was not either of those things. I came down with a handful of wet uh, paper, toilet paper. Of wet, a wad of wet toilet paper was now in my hand. Now, now remember, this is all happening very quickly. So, I think I'm shot. I'm not shot. It's toilet paper. I look up. A van is driving away. Um, that clearly, you know, whoever was in the van or a group of ruffians that was in the van had, you know, thrown a wet wad of toilet paper at my head and were presently laughing as they zoomed north on 6th Avenue at the terror that they instilled on this young guy. Okay, so hit, fear, toilet paper, who, van, anger, felt like I... Anger at, like, I was afraid from this. Someone's, they've got to be stopped. I've got to stop them. They, I have to report them. I just felt so powerless and vulnerable at that moment and stupid because I knew this was a possibility that I might be hurt if I'm going to be walking inebriated through Times Square. So there were this mix of all these emotions I felt someone needed to be held accountable for because I didn't do this, other than the mistake of walking to Times Square, drunk, at 3 a.m. So I realized that the first person that I had to talk to was a person of authority, i.e. a police officer that was going to help me in my time of need. There were none around immediately. It was the classic, where's the cop when you need one? And I was determined to find one. And so... I started running, like just to corners to look down cross streets to see if I saw any cops anywhere and continued up, you know, 6th Avenue and was looking around. And finally, I saw a parked police car. And this wave of excitement kind of filled me because I, I, I said to myself, they're going to pay. They're going to go. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to tell the cops what happened. They're going to say right on it and they're going to peel out and they're going to chase the van. So I approached the, the cop car and they're sitting in the car and I, and I went up and, I, and I, I'm kind of out of breath because I've been running. So I'm out of breath. I'm sweating a little bit. The cops are just looking at me. They don't seem to be concerned at all about anything. They're just kind of just looking at me. Well, I come in a ball of energy and I say, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, um, I was just uh, assaulted on uh, 6th Avenue. I was, I was walking down the street and uh, this van came by and as I'm describing to the cop what exactly happened, it dawned on me how embarrassing the punchline of this story was going to be. The conclusion of this story was going to be to these cops, these tough cops, the guys from the 70s movies, they, they're tough and they, there's no bullshit and they chomp cigars and, they, and how they were going to react when I told them what I got hit with. But at this point, it's kind of just pouring out of me because it's cathartic at this point and I'm still angry and scared and I want revenge and so I continued with the story and I said, and I was walking up 6th Avenue and, uh, and, and suddenly this van goes by and, and I get hit with a, 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 a wad of wet toilet paper. In the head. 
In the head. Right in the head. There's about... (laughs) There's about 10 seconds of silence. A good chunk of them just staring at me. Okay? And then finally, in like... Right out of central casting, uh, you know, New York cop, the guy goes, Y'all right? (laughs) (laughs) And I, just trying to save face, just like, Yeah, no, um, no, I'm good. Like, I'm, (laughs) my ears red. And it's just funny. I mean, that cop, I'll never forget the kind of deadpan look and just the staring. Just the timing was, like, perfect. Y'all right? Just, oh, it really put me in my place. (laughs) In a way that made me self-examine what my behavior and why I was getting all hyped up and not in a way that he was at all hostile or, like discounting it really it was just it was just kind of like a mirror like take a look are you're you gonna make it what do you think you think you can i think you could probably make it This is Risk. This is Liam Bailey behind me now. And we just heard Joe Latrulio. And unfortunately, we heard a little bit of me in there, too. Before that, we heard a little bit of Al Roker in in an interstitial that Jeff Barr created. Jeff is our episode editor, does so much amazing work for us. And you can find Jeff at jeffbarr.info. Now listen, guys, we might be coming to a town near you soon, and we need your story pitches because we love to feature on our live shows that we take on tour the stories of local folks in town. So, Pittsburgh, we are doing a show on October 17th in Pittsburgh, and the theme is terror, and the pitch deadline, if you want to email me, 
is the 1st of October. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Pitch us a terror story and get it to us by the 1st of October, Pittsburgh. Atlanta, we are in your town on November 6th. Also doing a workshop the next day. The theme is monstrous for Atlanta. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and pitch us your monstrous stories by October 15th, Atlantans. Now, Albuquerque, we are showing up in your city on November 13th. The theme is when life is like Porn. <laughs> pitch us your porniest stories, Albuquerque, and pitch those to us by the 15th of October. Again, we'll be in town on November 13th. Finally, Seattle. Seattle on the 12th of December. We will be in your town. Pitch us by the 15th of November. The theme is fucked up. Pinches your fucked up stories, Seattle. By the 15th of November, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. In a little bit, we're going to hear Jason Biggs. But before that, let me just say that getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Am I right, gang? Going to the post office takes a valuable time. And leasing a postage meter, well, that's just expensive. Luckily, I know a better way. Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a post postage meter, just a fraction of the cost, and you'll avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. You know, we use Stamps.com, At Risk, and The Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now, earlier we heard Ilana Glazer telling a story at the Risk Live show in New York City that we do every fourth Thursday at the People's Improv Theater. But you know what? We also do Risk every fourth Thursday at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. In just a bit, we'll hear a story from Jason Biggs there at the Nerd Melt show. But before that, we're going to hear a story from one of Saturday Night Live's newest cast members, Sashir Zameda. Here she is now with a story we call, God, I Hope I Get It. Look how you stun me now. Look how you stun me now. Now. So I didn't have any postgraduate plans by the time I hit my senior year of college. I majored in drama, and I knew I wanted to perform, but I didn't have a, like a clear direction. And all my friends at the time were auditioning for acting programs or applying to grad school or planning their traveling plans to like find themselves. But I wasn't appealed by any of that stuff. The year before my senior year, I was working at Disney World in the Disney College program for a summer and a semester. 
And I learned a lot. I learned how to work for a big corporation. I learned how to deal with people from all over the world. I learned how to walk on stilts. I learned how to use puppets. I learned, I was a character performer and I learned how to hug a kid in a way that made them feel the magic and the love, but in a way that wouldn't make their parents sue us. (laughs) And I liked it, I really liked it. And I stayed on the mailing list uh, for the casting breakdowns if they ever had any auditions for live performances. And when I got back to college and my program was over at Disney, I got an email for a position at Tokyo Disney for a big band jazz singer. And I was like, that's what I'm gonna do after college. (laughs) This is it, clearly. I'm gonna spend a year in Tokyo, sing in a jazz band, and then by the end of the year, I'll figure something out and come back to America and like, kill it. I don't have any experience singing in a jazz band. (laughs) Not at all. But I already have a Disney connection because I worked for them. And I know they have hundreds of thousands of employees, but they know me. (laughs) They know me. Every time I had to scan my barcode as I walked in the door, they knew it was me. (laughs) So I was like, okay, they're definitely gonna hook a girl up and give me a job after I graduate. So the audition was in New York. And I was going to school in Virginia at the time, and it was on a weekday, so I was like, you know, I'm gonna skip skip classes for my future. Um, And what I did was, I couldn't afford a plane ticket, so I took the cheapest route to New York. I drove to DC, and then took a Chinatown bus up to New York. And I was running late, because I'm always running late, and I just like pulled my car into some garage and ran to the bus, got on, went to New York, took the Jersey Transit to New Jersey to go to my mom's college friend's house to stay there because I couldn't afford a hotel. And then the next morning, I'm like ready to go. I'm super excited to audition. There's a dancing and a singing portion, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna dress comfortably, but like look cute at the same time. (laughs) And I print off my resume, and I have my headshot with me, and then I take the transit back into the city, and I go to Ripley Greer Studios, which is like this acting studio, and they have a bunch of rooms available for auditions and whatnot. And I wait in line, and I'm waiting around all these other actors, and they're all talking to each other about like their catering jobs, or their temping jobs, or their waitressing jobs, and I'm like, that will never be me. (laughs) I will always be a performer, and nothing else. And I'm like looking around and everyone is dressed to the nines, like heels and skirts and and ties and, and suits. And I'm wearing like yoga pants and a t-shirt because I was like, I had to be comfortable for the dancing portion. And I'm like, oh my God, these people are so underprepared. <laughs> Don't they realize there's a dancing portion? I am going to kill it. And we have to line up and drop off our headshot and resume on the table. And I'm looking at everyone else's headshot and resume and it's like eight by 10, color glossy, and their uh, resume is the same size as their headshot and stapled to the back of it. My headshot's black and white 
because no one told me otherwise. <laughs> and my resume is eight by 10, the regular size of a sheet of paper, or eight by 11, and uh, paper clipped to the back of my headshot. And I was like, oh, mine's so different from everyone else's. Mine is literally gonna stand out from everyone else's. <laughs> Like, it has to. <laughs> it's bigger than everyone else's. And totally different color. Like, of course people are going to notice mine before they notice anyone else's headshot. <laughs> this is great. And so I'm waiting to go inside, and I'm, like, stretching and getting ready and trying to warm up my vocals. And for the singing portion, I have my sheet music. I'm singing Open Arms by Journey. Uh, <laughs> which is not a jazz song. <laughs> but I feel like it shows off my range, so. I walk into the room, and since it's from Tokyo Disney, I'm like, konnichiwa. <laughs> they didn't laugh. <laughs> But I was like, they know it's cute. They know it. <laughs> and I give the pianist the sheet music, and he starts playing, and I'm singing. I feel really good about it, but the pianist is going way slower than my tempo. And so I'm trying to, like, pat my leg and stomp my foot to, like, get this guy to catch up to my speed. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing for the pianist. <laughs> because the casting directors are going to realize that he cannot keep up to my speed. That's obviously the correct speed. <laughs> I just feel bad for him. <laughs> and the song ends, and I'm like waiting for the casting directors to be like, oh my God, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming here. We could not find a talent like yours. You are going to Tokyo Disney right now. Here's a ticket. And they look at me and they go, all right, thank you. And that was it. That was it. They didn't ask me for the dancing portion. There was a second part of the audition. I was wearing yoga pants. <laughs> I was clearly ready for the dancing portion and they didn't invite me back. They just said, thank you. A very polite way to give a huge rejection. And I walked out before they could see me cry and I was like, all right, well, Thank you. And left, and I'm just crying down the street, crying down the street. And I call my dad, and I was like, but I wanted to go to Tokyo. <laughs> and he's trying to calm me down, and I need to change my clothes before I get on the transit back to Jersey. So I go into Forever 21 and just like pick up clothes and pretend like I'm going to change my clothes. And I'm just like crying more <laughs> into the dressing room. And then I get on the transit, get back to Jersey. I get back onto a Chinatown bus, go straight back to DC, crying the whole way, because I had no other plans than this brilliant Tokyo Disney plan <laughs> of what to do after college. And we get to DC at like 1 a.m., and the bus drops us off, and I go back to the garage where I parked my car, and it's closed. It's locked and closed. I didn't read any of the times for that place when I parked it. <laughs> 
for some reason I just assume that all parking garages are 24 hours or that I could at least get my car if I wanted it. <laughs> I couldn't. And I didn't know anyone in D.C. at the time and no one knew I was there. So I called my ex-stepmom who lives in Odenton, Maryland, which is like 45 minutes away. And I woke her up at like one in the morning and was like, so... I'm in D.C. And she's like, why? And I was like, ah, the audition. Look, I can't get my car right now. I don't know where to sleep or how to get anywhere right now. And she's trying to explain the train system to me. She's like, oh, okay, well, you can go to Union Station. Where are you right now? And right as I was about to tell her, my phone dies. And I'm outside, and I don't know where plugs are, and I can't figure out how to charge my phone. And I'm more freaked out that she's going to freak out and think that I was attacked or, or like, like I died instantly on the street or something. Because <laughs> she's a warrior. And I was like, oh, I have to find a, like a plug now so I can charge this phone. And I'm running around, and I find a hotel, and I'm like banging on the window, and the, the security guard's just ignoring me, just giving me so much shade. <laughs> And I was like, why, why, why won't he look at me? And I look down, there's a homeless man right outside. And I'm like, oh, he probably just thinks that I'm... <laughs> I'm just looking for a place to sleep. Which I do need a place to sleep, but I'm not homeless. And I finally, like, fi- I, ca- I find a cab. And I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm supposed to go to Union Station. I just don't know where that is. And so I get in the cab. And he's like, where to? I said, Union Station. And he takes me there. And it was three blocks away. <laughs> And he charged me like $9. He should have just told me where to go. Like, it's that way. And so he's like, no, get in my cab. I'll drive you three blocks and charge you for it. I get to Union Station. I charge my phone. My stepmom gives me the, the correct directions. And I get to her place. And I sleep at her place for the night. Wake up in the morning. Head back to D.C. And I get my car out. It's like 200 bucks for me to get my car out. Because it was charging me by the hour. (laughs) And I didn't know that. (laughs) And then I had to drive back to Charlottesville and go to class. And I was just like so upset by this whole experience. I was so tired. I feel like I couldn't cry anymore. I was just like drained. And I graduate. Still don't have a concrete idea of what I want to do. But I end up living with my ex-stepmom, the one who saved me from this whole thing. And it was great. And it was really good to be with her. And within that time, I realized, I'm just going to go to New York. I'm just going to go. I don't have any actual clear plans, but I know I want to perform. And I feel like that's where I should be to do this. So I just moved there. And I feel prepared. I feel ready. Because I already had, like, a terrible experience there. (laughs) So anything else is just uphill from here. And then I audition at Ripley Greer a lot. I become one of those people who's talking about their catering jobs or their babysitting jobs or their hosting jobs. And I like it. I like the grind. I like the hustle. And that Tokyo Disney audition was the first of a long line of rejection that eventually led to success. So if I had known that all of the great things that happened because of rejection in that audition when the casting director said, thank you, I should have said, no, thank you. Thanks, guys. (laughs) 
I'm so dumb. I'm dummy. Jerry? Yeah. Um, you know what? You've got the right look. Mm. It's just that your read is a little stupid. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I just got the script like five minutes. That's okay. That's okay. Let's do it again. And this time maybe turn down the stupid. Mm. Right, just a notch. Great. Okay. I'm so dumb. I'm Mr. Doomy. I'm Doomy, but I'm so stupid. I like the view. The view is my mommy. Jerry. Hi, mommy. Jerry. Stop. Yeah, you're still doing it. It's like you're... A little brain-dead yeah. monkey. Yeah. But uh, yeah. thanks for coming in. And we'll keep you in mind. Mm. Thank you. Uh, could I, could I, please, could I try it one more time? I, I know I can nail it. No. No. So, okay, uh, if you live in L.A., do you live in L.A.? You guys are fucking sucky. Uh, all right, well, if you live in L.A., um, you know that there are a lot of helicopters around L.A. There's kind of a shit ton of them, right? They're all over the place. Anyway, where uh, my wife and I, Jenny, uh, we live kind of up in the hills in this, you know, this nice little spot that, uh, that we bought with uh, the cash from, you know... Uh, <laughs> her uh, guest-starring gig on Medium a couple of years ago. <laughs> so we're up in the hills, and it's, it's kind of rad because we've got a great vantage point of sort of all the helicopter traffic that kind of goes down in L.A., you know? You can kind of see them coming back and forth, and sometimes it sounds literally like they're... like they're right there, like right on top of the house or right next to the house. One morning, I awoke to the sound of a, a helicopter or helicopters literally sounding like they were landing on top of our roof, like they were, they were gonna fly us away somewhere. It was, so, <laughs> it was so intense, I was like, holy shit, it was atypical, because I had, at this point, kind of gotten used to the, all of the helicopter activity. So I get up, right, and I'm like, what the fuck, man, this is insane, there's some shit going down. And I look out the window, and there's a fucking helicopter there with the fucking paparazzi dude, right? With one of those like long cocks, no, long <laughs> uh, lens cameras, right? Taking pictures of me and my wife, Jenny, sleeping in bed. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is nuts, right? Like my cock is hanging out of my boxer shorts. My wife is fucking sitting there mouth breathing with zit cream all over her face. This is fucking insane, but how fucking cool is this that the paparazzi want to take photos of me? This is like the fucking coolest thing ever, right? So I'm like fucking pumped. And right as I was about to call my friends and start bragging about this new status of fame that I had achieved, um, I woke up. Um, I was dreaming about the whole fucking paparazzi thing. I was not dreaming about the helicopters. I guess there was such crazy helicopter activity around the house, it had infiltrated my dreams, and so I had thought that it was paparazzi. It wasn't. But anyway, I get up, and I look outside. Not paparazzi copters, but LAPD. News vans. <laughs> Actual news vans flying... <laughs> 
in the fucking hills. It was the crazy. You ha, have you've never seen one. Well, you guys don't live in L.A., but if you guys live in L.A., you'll notice the actual news vans flying. So okay, so it's nuts, right? And it's still the fucking butt crack of dawn, right? So it's dark. They've got their you know spotlights, their flashlights. There's a <laughs> there's guys hanging with flashlights out of the helicopter, and I can't tell what they're pointing at. I can't tell where the activity is, is happening, but it's close, okay? I actually looked at my wife, and I was like, is she currently doing something illegal? Like, what the... F-? And she wasn't, that I could tell. That I could tell. But anyway, I think it was a combination of fatigue, because it was 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever the fuck, and disappointment that it wasn't a paparazzi copter for me that led to my just disinterest and I just was like, fuck it, I'm going back to bed. So I went back to bed and like three hours later, I wake up. Now it's a reasonable hour. It's like 8 a.m. And copters are still there, okay? Jenny and I wake up. We can hear like there's something going on over like the loudspeaker, like they're announcing something, right? And we're like, oh my God, this is fucking intense. And Jenny's like, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're saying? And I'm like... Kind of, yeah, no, I can, yeah, 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 kind of. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're saying, Ricardo Montalban, please get out of the house. We have your house surrounded. Put down the gun and get out of the house. Ricardo Montalban, get out of the house. And I'm like, really? That's what they're, that's what they're saying? Ricardo Montalban? And Jenny's like, yes. They're saying, Ricardo Montalban, get out of the house. We have your house surrounded. And I'm like, Jenny, Ricardo Montalban? Do you know, Mr. Rourke? Mr. Rourke from Fantasy Island, he doesn't live in our neighborhood. Also, he's dead, so I'm pretty sure that's ridiculous. Anyway, we go outside to survey the scene and see what's happening. We go out there. All of our neighbors already at this point are camped out checking out the uh, shenanigans that are going on. We go out to the neighbors. We follow their gaze up to this house directly across from us, across the canyon. And there is... Full SWAT team, all right? Like, insanity. Like, full um, dudes with full, like, combat gear and assault rifles and helmets and... Helmets always confuse. Why would they need helmets? Oh, whatever. (laughs) I mean, maybe they'll trip and fall or something. I don't know. They can never be too careful. But anyway, they're, like, positioned strategically in the hillside, and they're, like, in adjacent houses, and they're, like, hanging off of telephone wires and shit. And I'm like, this is fucking awesome. So we're watching this go down, and we see that the house that they have surrounded is this, like, modern, all-glass kind of house. And we can see right in, and there's this dude inside in his underwear, running around frantically with a fucking gun in his hand. And we're like, holy shit, this is getting better and better. And so we ask our neighbor, like, do you guys know anything about this? And then one neighbor is like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I I know a lot about this. And we're like, please tell us, sensei. What what do you know? And he's like, well, I've been up the whole time. Between 4 and 6 a.m., he fired five rounds out of his Glock handgun into the canyon. We're like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He did it five times, and I just sat here with the lights off in my house and uh, just watched and listened to the whole thing go down. And me and Jenny are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Why did you have your lights off? Why couldn't you turn your lights on? And he's like, I don't want to be a target. And we're like, whoa, that's cool. (laughs) 
I think it was a vet. I think he was a vet. He knows what's up. And so it was at that point that Jenny and I realized the seriousness of this situation, that this fucking guy, Ricardo Montalbaum, could at any moment either accidentally or intentionally shoot any one of us in the face. I mean, we're totally within striking distance. So you would think at this point we would retreat to the relative safety of our home. You would think wrong if you thought that because Jenny made me go back to the house simply to retrieve the binoculars so that we can get a better view of the show. So I come back out, we get the binoculars, we watch for a couple of hours. I mean, I remember a bowl of tortilla chips. I think I brought a, a TV out there on an extension cord. I mean, it was a whole thing. A couple hours go by. Fortunately, the guy was arrested. Unfortunately for Jenny and I, uh, we didn't see this happen. He must have gotten arrested in a part of the house that was not visible to us, which is kind of a bummer, but whatever. But at this point now, Jenny and I are beyond curious about this guy. We're like, who the fuck is this guy? It's a pretty nice neighborhood. I mean, we're talking guest star medium money. I mean, we're up in the shit, you know? It's fucking... So... We're like, who the fuck has infiltrated our neighborhood, right? I mean, what is going on? We're beyond curious about this guy. We become kind of fascinated with him. And by beyond curious, what I mean is I am slightly curious and my wife is a possessed devil woman who is willing to do anything to find out even a kernel of information about this guy, okay? Mind you, this is the same woman who tracked down her therapist on Facebook and stopped seeing him when he did not pick up her friend request, Like, that's my wife. So anyway, so she becomes totally focused on this dude, and I'm along for the ride. So so anyway, she convinces me that we should go for a walk later that afternoon to the house. Um, This is after, by the way, we go online, we check the news, we don't find anything out about this guy. So she's like, let's go for a walk over to his house. And I'm like, you know, okay. So... We go and we walk up to this guy's house. Also, we're in like, she thinks that it'll be fun if we go like as joggers, which if you know me, you would know that this is a natural physique. I don't fucking jog. So this is a huge joke, obviously. I'm like in a headband and fucking bullshit and short shorts and it's like a whole fucking costume. So we go up to this guy's house expecting to find somebody, a cop, a leftover cop or something. Someone's going to be there, right? Who can give us some deets, some juicy fucking bits. And uh, there's no one there. It's like crickets. And we're like, this is fucking crazy. The only thing that was there was the requisite yellow police tape going around the, the whole house. So anyway, we start scoping around. I kind of walk around the back of the house. I'm looking, you could see where they like fingerprinted and shit and all this kind of crazy stuff. There was one place where we were like, huh, looks like there was a struggle there. Jenny's like, yeah, that was a struggle. <laughs> and, and so we keep kind of inspecting and we're taking notes. <laughs> we didn't take notes. We should have taken notes. Um, so I walk around the back of the house and then Jenny is all of a sudden not with me. And I'm like, where the fuck is Jenny going? And all of a sudden I hear a, tap, 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 on glass. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I look up, and Jenny's in the fucking house. Jenny's in the fucking house, you guys. I'm like, I fucking shit myself. I actually shit. Shit came down my pant leg. I didn't shit myself, but I I was about to shit myself. And I'm like, what the fuck is Jenny doing inside of the fucking house? So I'm like, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out of the house. And she's like, and I'm like, get the fuck out. 
So she gets out of the house. She comes out, and I'm like, holy fuck, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? What the fuck are you doing? She's like, ah, the, ah, the, you know, the door was open. And I'm like, open or I'm locked, because that's fucking different. There's a fucking difference. So I'm fucking yelling. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. So we're like hightailing it out of the fucking neighborhood. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are you fucking crazy? It's fucking illegal. We can't fucking, we're going to go to fucking jail for that. Oh, my God, tell me everything. What did you find? Did you see anything good? Please tell me, what did you see? And um, she didn't see anything. She's like, the place was super ransacked, but then you started freaking out, and I fucking had to come out of the house. So we didn't really get anything then. Anyway, but what a fucking crazy cunt, right? So anyway, so we, so we go back home. That night, we have friends over, because we were already planned to have friends over. And I basically spend the entire evening hosting my friends downstairs, while Jenny is up on the roof with uh, the pair of binoculars doing surveillance on our fucking neighbor. And <laughs> when she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what? Uh, the guy fucking came home that day. This is fucking less than 12 hours later. I mean, this was in the morning. This guy in the morning, we're like, what the fuck? This is insane. This guy this morning was you know, wielding a fucking handgun around his house and SWAT team and helicopters and all this crazy shit was happening and now he's fucking sitting in his living room watching The Bachelor. I know what he was watching because Jenny was basically watching it with him through his, her binoculars. <laughs> so now, like, we've gone to the next level of curiousness. And so he's home, okay? We're like, how do we deal now? We've got this felon who's a sometime gunslinger, you know, like has a hobby of just kind of, I'm just going to shoot my gun into the canyon <laughs> just for shits and giggles. Shiggles, as I like to call it. Uh, you know, just for fun. And, like, he's here. He's within a football field of us, totally within striking distance, Okay. He, uh, he's home, and we're like, oh, my God. Now, at this point, the reconnaissance goes into high gear. So Jenny even suggests, this is great, she suggests maybe we should rear-end his car because this way she can leave a note on his windshield with her phone number, forcing him to make contact, you know? Like, oops, sorry, I... I hit your car. I'm your neighbor. Here's my number. Call me. I'll totally fix it. Smiley face. And it's like, are you fucking nuts? I put the kibosh on that. What I didn't kibosh was a couple days later, there was, <laughs> there was a open house. Just sort of catty corner to where this guy lived. And it was brilliant because we're like, this, that house has the fucking view of the Montalban estate, right? This looks right into Ricardo's fucking lair. So we, of course, go to this open house on a Sunday afternoon, and we're like, yes, we were totally in the market for... It was like the ugliest house, too. We were like, we would never buy it, but um, we were like, yeah, you know, this is amazing. This is amazing. Where's the living room with the windows that look into the next-door neighbor's house? And so we go, and we're literally glued to the living room windows, like, looking in, like, fucking. And she's like, would you like to see the, the in-law suite? And we're like, oh, fuck yourself later. We're looking at the fucking. Anyway, we told her what we were doing in the end, and then we tried to grill her for information. She had nothing. In the end, things kind of returned to normal. The truth was, we couldn't dig up anything on this guy. And in the end, we were probably doing more illegal shit than this guy ever had. That's the truth of it. So we let things kind of go back to normal. And 
by normal, I mean my wife just became obsessed with something else, like one of my ex-girlfriends or something. <laughs> and so time went by, and we would notice occasionally some activity from the house, but nothing too suspect. We would notice like a dinner party or something. We would try to guess what kind of food he was serving and stuff like that, but nothing too crazy or anything. We were never that crazy. But, but anyway, things kind of went back to normal. And then one day I was out on my balcony and all of a sudden Ricardo Montalban comes out on his balcony. And I swear to you, in my memory of the moment, we totally fucking locked eyes from across the canyon, Okay. And I realized, like, he's just a harmless dude. Like, he, he doesn't mean me any harm. He was totally chill. Everything was fine. And it was kind of great closure for me. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is done. You know, I'm done with this. And I went back inside the house where my wife was. And she was on the phone with one of her friends having a conversation about which one of our dogs she would eat first in the event of a food shortage or, or some sort of crisis. And I realized right at that moment that my energy would probably be best spent not focusing on the crazy shit going on outside of my house, but on the crazy shit that was and will continue to go on inside of my house with my, with my crazy wife. Thank you guys, have a great night. <laughs> And that is the Bar Brothers behind me now. We just heard from Jason Biggs, who you probably best know from the movie uh, American Pie. Now listen, folks, mark your calendars, because the first ever Max Fun Week is coming up October 15th through 21st. If you don't know, Risk is a member of the wonderful Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and Max Fun Week is all about celebrating the creativity and passion of our listeners, and, uh, you know, having Q&As, behind-the-scenes tours, giveaways, and more. It's not a fundraiser. It's just awesome fun for you. So tune in to all of your favorite Maximum Fun shows, and check out some new ones during Max Fun Week, October 15th through the 21st. And now for our last story of this episode, we're going to go to David Koechner. It's been in so many movies and TV shows, but the one I always remember the best is Anchorman. Here he is now with a story we call 
the general. I remember uh, in sixth grade, a teacher, a student teacher, came to our class. I'm from a small town in Missouri. And the thing that he talked about is a little bit remarkable in that it was very political. Uh, the thing that was the most seared in my brain was he said, what you should do in life is replace only you and your spouse because there are limited natural resources in this world and we keep growing as a global population. And the way to keep it in check was just replace you and your spouse. And that really hit me. I was like, oh, that, you know what? That makes absolute sense. I remember that's what I digested from that talk. My wife and I have five children. <laughs> Here's how it happened. I got married at 33. I waited. My wife was 30. We went through a lot. And uh, we got engaged. We bought a house together uh, before we were married. Because, like, you know, that's it. I'm in, right? So my wife was on the pill, and I'd, I'd, I'd been aware that people have these fertility problems. And I thought, well, she's been on the pill for probably 12, 13 years, and it'll probably take a while to flush the system. So she goes off the pill before we get married. And I'm thinking in my mind, because I think I can divine how things will happen, it'll probably take a year to get pregnant. Well, it didn't. <laughs> we got married in June, and we were pregnant in September. Which to me is like, oh, that changes my plan. I thought we we're going to have this year of like, hey, let's find out what we're like together as a married couple. Maybe travel, but no, we're pregnant. So that, all right, let's do things differently. Oh, your body's going to change. Oh, I don't know how to deal with that. Because I don't know how the chemical reaction in a female's body changes her behavior and everything else. She gained 68 pounds. She gained so much weight that her nose got fat. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And once we were out to... Uh, breakfast and she was uh, eating for a long time <laughs> and she was eating pancakes and I remember she would take a bite like she'd cut a bite put syrup on it and eat it cut a bite put syrup on it and eat it and I was like just watching her and she goes what I'm fat aren't I and I was like no just your nose <laughs> Okay, so we'd have a, had a beautiful pregnancy. Everything was going great. And uh, about five weeks before she was to give birth, uh, she was spotting, which means uh, uncomfortably for the room. Uh, there was blood coming from her pagina. I said pagina to kind of curtail, take the edge off of it just a little bit. So she'd been working at this point because she kept saying, hey, when can I quit working? And I'm like, uh, when the baby's born, let's keep cash coming in as much as we can. <laughs> so now she's on bed rest. Okay, great, you're done working. Well, later that night, she wakes up. She goes to the bathroom. She felt this sensation. She thought her water broke. And then she turned the light on. It's like, oh, my water didn't break. Uh, there's a lot of blood in the stool. So she wakes me up, and uh, I'm like, oh, okay, we're going. Here we go. We're going to go to the hospital. We had to go to the We live in the hipster area town, the valley. And so we're going to Cedars. So we go over, get there, boom. They rush her into the delivery room. And the doctor rushes in and looks at me. And she, I, I thought, wow, why is she so panicked? And then they get me in the scrubs. And I go in there. And, and so it's going to be an emergency C-section because she's not quite due. So they put the little curtain between 
the operation and us, and we're back there, and boom, the you know the baby's out quickly. I go over. I had a and this was in. 1999 before phone smartphones so i had a instamatic no an instant cam what were they called D- disposable camera why am i asking you guys you don't know what that is take a picture i'm heading back to my wife's side and i noticed the doctor uh, i caught her eye so they're still furiously working my son is uh born he's over there they clean him up i'm going back over here she looks up at me like this and my thought, my honest-to-God thought was, are you stealing something? <laughs> her, her organs are splayed out over her belly, and I'm like, what's going on there? Is, is, is my wife's uterus filled with gold? And you're like, hmm? <laughs> Well, as it turned out, my wife was starting to bleed to death because uh, we had a very rare thing, and by virtue of you hearing this conversation, you will never have this sensation, I hope. It's so rare... It's like one in a million, and let's face it, you're not. Um, (laughs) You're one in a billion. Uh, It's a rare thing called placenta accreta, where the placenta grows into the uterus. Normally, it just goes up to the uterus and goes, when the the, uh, baby's born, it says, hey, man, thanks for the ride. I got to cut. (laughs) But in placenta accreta, it does this. Hey, man, why don't you all come with me? So it's like um, a thousand holes have been cut into the uterine wall. And so we're back there kind of going, what's happening? This should be over, right? And they're furiously working, and we're hanging out behind the curtain making jokes and sometimes praying. And they kind of let us know. They're like, oh, uh, something's going on. You're bleeding. It's, it's this not exactly what we expected, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, three and a half hours on the operating table, they finally say... Um, Listen, we're going to have to take your uterus or you're going to die. And I'm thinking, yeah, take that uterus because I sure as fuck am not going to raise that kid by myself. (laughs) So they take her uterus. She lives. It's a really weird experience. Everything. They do it and sew her back up. And then you're left alone in the operating room. (laughs) You're like, wow, the chaos is over. We're just here. And then someone has to come in and count the sponges (laughs) before you're allowed to go out. Really, for malpractice reasons. Anyway, next morning we wheeled up there <clears throat> to the top room. Doctor comes in, like, well, thank God you're alive, which I'm thinking is like, okay, all right, you're staving off a lawsuit for whatever the fuck happened the night before. Uh, well, good news, bad news. Uh, good news, you're alive. Uh, bad news, you don't have a uterus anymore. But other good news is you still have your ovaries. Because if you remember from your, I don't know, eighth grade biology, maybe sophomore year, your ovaries are on the outside of your uterus, and they look somewhat like upside-down calamari, like this. <laughs> and then there they are. They're still there. So good luck. You can, you, know, you can have more children of your own. Oh, okay, great. Well, one was pretty traumatic, so I'm not sure if I want to do that again at all, ever. So uh, during Charlie's first year of life, my wife, Lee, started investigating surrogacy because that's the way it was going to have to happen for us. So she um, gets online, furiously looking. We meet uh, a bunch of weird people <laughs> online who are potential surrogates. I remember the best, my favorite was uh, we were supposed to meet a couple in San Diego at a park. <laughs> so Charlie is uh, just a year old, and we go down to San Diego, and we go to some park, and we're waiting, and then some sketchy van just takes off. I'm like, I don't think this is the way we should do this. 
So here's what the way it, the, the, you normally do it. You go to an agency, right? And what you do is you go to an agency and you get a, uh, uh, like a, a pickup truck full of money and you back it up and you leave it there. <laughs> and you go, okay, hey, why don't you introduce us to a person who can carry a child for us? Like, okay, now you can come in. So uh, you do that, and then you, you write your story, your book of why you have to have a surrogate, and then they actually pick you. Uh, they go, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so someone picks us, and we go out. To, you're supposed to go on a first date with the potential surrogate couple. And a surrogate has to have, have already successfully carried a child. Uh, and so that's, we know that that uterus is a good working uterus. So we meet this couple. We go to a Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> We pay, of course. <laughs> and uh, they agree, like, oh, yeah. So after whatever, they say, yes, it's them. And so then the next step is you go, and my wife has to have her eggs extracted from her ovum. And then my part of the job is uh, I the medical, the clinical term is I have to extract cum from my cock. <laughs> So it's on the same day. The, they, they wheel her into a room, and they're taking uh, eggs. From, we've had to go through fertility stuff, like you take shots for a while to increase the number of eggs that can drop that particular month. And uh, meanwhile, your surrogate is taking some hormones to get a nice, thick lining on her uterus. <laughs> just, just so you know, uh, guys, you don't get to have sex with the, the surrogate. <laughs> But what you do get to do, guys, because uh, you have to go do your business, jerk off in a sterile room. Sterile. I'm from Missouri. <laughs> is you get to buy pornography and without consequence. You don't have to hide it. You're like, yeah, I got a backpack full of porn. <laughs> you bring it into the room. And so I'm in the jerk off room. And you've got your porn that you haven't looked at, guys. Because <laughs> you want to keep that fresh seal on it. And they give you this medical tray, and they've also provided a couple of videos and a magazine. And now, fellas, you haven't jerked off in like four or five days, and you're like, I can't wait to get at this thing. <laughs> and then a nurse comes from, a, a, like, I'm going to call it a nurse. I'm assuming it's a nurse. It happened to be a female. She gives you this little container that looks like a, um, um, a urine sample container. But we all know now that this is a cum container. <laughs> it's got a nice wide mouth. Nice cups, so you're like, all right, it's already pre-filled out. Your name, all that stuff was on there. You go to business, you're looking through your backpack. What am I going to use? But you're drawn, of course, to the um, well-worn <laughs> penthouse from 1992. <laughs> because that's the one you can't take home. You're like, well, I'm, not, I'm only going to look at this now. <laughs> So you start flipping through, you're like getting your business going, you're like, oh, fuck. Oh, before you know it, you're like popping off. Now, I'm not going to show you how that part works. I'm assuming this is mostly an adult crowd, and you know how this thing goes. The hardest part of that is, is getting it in the, uh, I'm going to say it's about an inch and a half. Is that two inches? You know what a urine sample cup looks like? It's about like that. You're like, you got to get it in there. Now, the thing is, um, your penis is up this way. So, you're... Anyway, uh, 
the thing that helps you ejaculate even more is you pretend that that nurse has cracked the door just this much <laughs> and is watching you. So I deliver my semen into this cup, close it, and hand it to the woman who's right there on the other side of the door. And I'm like, yeah, she was watching. <laughs> Peruse the magazine. Wow, I could have gone there. Okay, anyway, so I'm done. Now, the, my, my wife's uh, eggs are waiting on the other side in some Petri dish or something, I'm guessing, and uh, I don't know how the procedure works. My guess is that uh, they take the lid off, and uh, then the nurse probably, you know, you've got maybe three or four dishes of ovum there, and she probably does, you know, that. <laughs> so on that day, we created 11 embryos. 11 more potential little Kechners. They take the first three uh, live embryos, they call them fresh, and they, put, they transfer them into the surrogate. My guess is something like this. <laughs> Mama wants another baby, let's go. So they transfer those to the, the surrogate, they freeze the other eight in two separate pods or whatever. I'm gonna say test tube, tubes, all right? Uh, as luck would have it, we got pregnant right away, um, one. And uh, we, nine months later, 10 months later, actually, guys, it's 10 months. The gestation cycle of uh, the human is 10 months. We keep saying nine months. I don't know why we're cheating these ladies out of one painful month, but it's 10. Okay. So uh, 10 months later, we go and boom, we've got our daughter, Margo, which is amazing, right? Now we have a boy and a girl. That's a pair. We're done. Right, honey? That's what we're supposed to do, replace you and your spouse on this planet. My wife goes, uh-huh. We have that, but we have those other babies. Like what? Other babies. The ones that are frozen now. Those are babies. Oh, we never talked about that. Ah, uh, there's so many important conversations to have in life. That's a pretty big one. Like, okay, well, they're frozen. What are the chances, right? So a couple years after Margo was born, I know, cool name, Charlie and Margo now, uh, my wife says, let's do it again. And I said, why not? Because here's the thing. Um, so there's the agency gets a fee, and of course the surrogate gets a fee. Oh, I forgot to mention, there's a 25-page contract that comes along with the surrogacy, and you also pay for her lawyer. Uh, conflict of interest? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So you've got all these things. The contract includes everything down to how many Diet Dr. Peppers they can have a day. Right, it's all everything, everything, everything. Clothes allowance, babysitter allowance, clean all, everything, uh, and uh, you actually have to adopt your own child <laughs> before it's born, because it goes with a live birth mother. And then the nurses there get really like, "What's going on? You're going to take this baby? Hold on, what?" And like, "Here's a fucking lawyer. It's going to have some of my fucking child." Okay, don't. This isn't 1982 and the time. The case that gets in the cover of Time Magazine. This is a big business now, so just get the fuck out of the way and give me my child. Anyway, uh, just so a matter of course, I want you to know that the, the, the baby's 100% ours, right? And even the blood from the surrogate doesn't go through that baby. It's, they just get nutrients from the uh, umbilical cord. And people are like, oh, okay, right. It's 100% yours. A uh, couple years later, my wife says, let's try it again. And like I said, okay, um, why not? Because... Uh, I don't have any money. Why would I ever have money? Uh, and I know you guys think once you're in one movie, you're set for life. That's not the case. Uh, so let's, here's the thing. There's one thing I will not have in my house. And that is money. <laughs> so I go to the bank and go to the ATM and there's a balance in there. I'm going to extract all of it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to light a fire. I'm going to gather the kids around. I'm going to say, get out of here. Money. Me. <laughs> 
couple years later, we tried again. Uh, this is actually a new surrogate, new fee. <laughs> Uh, because the first surrogate had already had five kids and then ours and the doctor's like, hey, that uterus is done. You can't do anything. That, that horse can't work no more. Is that an indelicate metaphor? So we hire a new surrogate, the whole gamut, date, blah, 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 no more weird San Diego park. Um, actually paid more for the next one. So um, same thing. Now we're going to thaw out the, the next group of embryos. There's four of them in a, in a group. They thaw them out, and embryos either uh, continue to grow or they fragment. So there's only three viable embryos. So we transfer those into the next surrogate. Clackety, clackety, clackety. Daddy wants a new baby. Boom. Well, we're pregnant right away. Now I'm out of town, and they go, hey, well, there's, we're getting unusual high levels. And oh, my goodness, lucky you, you're pregnant with twins. Well, awesome. <laughs> Great. I mean, because I thought I could, I could raise one more child standing in my head, but twins, like, that's going to double overnight. <laughs> and that's just what? More what, fellas? Money. Okay, great. So uh, we keep going, and uh, yep, you're having twins, still having twins, still having twins. Uh, great. So 10 months later, we uh, have Sergeant and Audrey born. Again, two more great names. Boom. Now, at this point, we have two boys and two girls. That's two pair. So I don't know how many people in this room gamble, but you would probably call or raise on two pair anywhere. <laughs> Take your money and walk away from the table and go, hey man, I'm done, I'm good. <clears throat> At this point, I'd like to interject an idea about parenting and kids and you know, talking about it. You meet another couple that's either married or whatever. You go, oh, do you, the, 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 the subject comes up, do you have kids? Yeah, we have kids. And they might not have kids. They go, we don't have kids, but we have a dog. That's not the same thing. That's a bad comparison. You might as well say, we don't have kids, but we have a bar of soap with a hair in it. So, is that... Are you a crazy person? What are you talking about? We don't have kids, but we have an old tractor tire in a shed that collects water in the summer and creates mosquitoes. Is that what you mean? No, that's not what I mean. If you have a dog, so what? I have a child I'm talking about. You have an animal. It's not the same. Yeah, but our dog's a rescue. <laughs> so we're better than you and your kids. So anyway, I'm happy with the four kids. Life keeps going on, and my wife reminds me, uh, what are we going to do with those, those embryos? Like, oh, I was hoping you would forget we had, and it costs $500 a year to keep them frozen. <laughs> you keep getting this... Uh, mail from the cryo center that says hey by the way you've got babies stored here you want to pay us the five hundred dollars i don't it's like a ransom note what are you gonna do if i don't you're gonna sell them you're gonna give them away because that's slavery we're running into a lot of moral and ethical issues here Especially if your wife believes those are still babies. I'm like, oh, are they? Really? She's convinced of it. So, yeah, okay, I wasn't asking. I, was, I did ask, but yes, all right. Your, everyone's opinion is, 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 is viable. So, in my wife's opinion, those are babies. So, I can't make that moral, ethical judgment for her. And I'm like, okay, well, I was in my later 40s at the time. Uh, I'm in my early 50s now, thank you. I look great, I know. 
And uh, so I was 47. I was like, fuck, man, really? More kids? Because <sighs> I was thinking, um, they're, they're microscopic, these embryos. You, you can't, you, can, you know, I understand you just want to uh, give them away, um, which is an option, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't give my kids away. Uh, I could now. So I thought, you know, they're microscopic. You can't even see them. Can't we just uh, pray a lot and, and bake them into a meatloaf and e eat them? <laughs> Guys, <laughs> fellas, you got to stay with me on this. So for my wife's birthday that year, I said, okay, I brought our, our next surrogate in, who was the second surrogate, who agreed to come down on my wife's birthday. And I was like, hey, and she hands her a card, happy birthday, let's try it again. I'm like, okay. Because again, yeah, I don't have any money, so fuck it. Why ever have any? So we... Try it again. Now, this is 10 years after the first uh, group uh, was frozen. So I'm thinking there's no way these are still going to be viable. So they thaw them out. There's only one viable embryo. The other's fragmented, which would happen in the natural matter, of course. Slip that into the surrogate. Not any clackety, clackety. Just here we go. Boom, of course, we're pregnant. Great. All right. Um, and uh, here's the, the interesting thing about the final four kids uh they're all conceived on the same day <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> and um, a friend of mine once reminded me that three different women have had my children not bad <laughs> it's like the old conestoga wagon trail <laughs> so. anyway so we keep going after about a month and a half of going for a sonogram and the doctors say huh we see something like what are you talking about we see something we'd like to do an amniocentesis which usually means oh we think you might have a down syndrome baby I'm like well, what are you talking about I see the light it's going to take about five or six more minutes um, <laughs> so we're like whatever so they do the amniocentesis and they, they say we'd like to talk to you and they put us in a, to a genetic counselor I'm like what, what's going on hey how old are you and all this stuff and give us your family history and now my wife was 34 when they pulled her eggs and I was 34 when I jerked off into a cup with a woman fantasizing watching me anyway, um, which by the way guys is a viable thing if you want to keep uh, your sex life alive uh, always have someone peering in so anyway, we see something. So the genetic counselor is getting our family history about mental retardation and Down syndrome and all this other stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, well it seems like your daughter um, is going to be severely mentally retarded. Now, this is the last one. And we're like, oh, man, we went too far. And uh, like, well, what, what do you want to talk about? Like, well, we should go ahead and terminate. We're like, uh, um, we, no, 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 we're not going to. I mean, because I'm thinking, look how much money I spent. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not going to just terminate. So we keep going, and every, you, have, you know, the, the sonograms become more frequent because you're hitting that three-month mark, and they're like, we really need to talk to you about termination. And I'm like, should we have that conversation, honey? And she doesn't even reply. Um, but I, they told us that uh, our daughter was um, her twisted limbs and her, her nuchal folds were all messed up and she had glowing in the bowel and her brain wasn't growing and that she had two holes in her heart and we're going to have to have multiple surgeries. And, um, I mean, that's, fellas, that's some bread. <laughs> Not to be selfish about it, but we're looking at a lot of money, a lot of man hours. And so my wife's response was, 
oh, I don't care if our daughter can't ever recognize us or see us or walk. She's going to have the most kick-ass wheelchair that anyone has ever seen. I'm like, okay, I can't argue with that. If I couldn't get her to buy into the meatloaf sandwich. <laughs> so we keep going, and it keep, we keep getting worse and worse news. Now, we get up, uh, bumped up to a, a, a specialist in the sonogram business. Uh, she's named Genetic Disorders, because we're in L.A. Uh, she's a rock star, and I've been going back and forth out of town uh, uh, working uh, in the movie business. Don't treat me differently. And... <laughs> So I'm coming home because we're now past termination. We're like, okay, we're just going for the ride. Whatever happened, we keep getting more and more bad news. And so we're going to the fifth month uh, uh, sonogram. And um, the genetic specialist, sonogram specialist, had told my wife that um, whenever she saw our name on the list, she would cry. That's how good it was for us, right? So we go in, and it's the day before Halloween. I flew in from Canada. We got a, a big flat screen TV. We're in Beverly Hills, and you, they've got like 3D sonograms. You can nearly see nipple. Um, <laughs> so she's got the jelly on the belly of our surrogate. She's doing her business. She's going back and forth. It's a, on the big monitor, and she goes, huh. She said, this is miraculous. She said, there's, there's nothing wrong with your baby. And we're like, what? She said, I, there's nothing wrong with your baby, and I'm just, I'm crying. Because I'm thinking, do you know how much money I'm going to save? <laughs> guys. Guys. So here's what happens. It turns out what had happened was this rare thing. I assume no one here is even of uh, bearing age, uh, <laughs> let alone having given birth because you're out on a Thursday night. So there's a rare thing called a fifths disease, and if you've ever gone to preschool, um, or if you've ever been a mother or a father to preschool, you'll see a posting occasionally, uh, if you're pregnant, don't come around because there's been a case of reported fifths disease, and it's merely this. It's a flushed face and a rash on the belly that lasts one day, in a, usually in toddlers. You don't see it in adults much, but it can be fatal to a fetus, and our surrogate's daughter had fifths disease. She thought her daughter got sun sunburned one day. It was only later she was like, Oh my God, that's what happened. Because it it's not an ongoing little uh, uh, sickness. It just happens one or two days, then it's gone. So our daughter had contracted parvovirus from the fifths disease. And so the parvovirus mimicked all the markers for mental retardation. So our, our fetus curled up to fight off the virus. And then she, she beat it, and then she was fine. So... Nine, ten months later, she's born, 100% healthy, absolutely nothing wrong with her. In fact, when she was born, the, the, one of the uh, delivery nurses comes out and announces, baby looks like dad. <laughs> so, great news for the baby. <laughs> And Eve is a strong, kick-ass little girl. We named her Eve when we thought it was the worst part of it. Uh, no regrets. Uh, still another great name. So, you know, every once in a while now, if we'll take her to the park uh, or just out playing whatever, uh, someone might comment truthfully, oh, my God, what a beautiful little girl. And we'll say, yeah, she's a rescue. <laughs> my name is David Kechner. I have five children, and I believe you should only replace you and your spouse.
So I'm asking several of you in here to either only have one or none. Thank you. Episode. This is Dream Machines behind me now. Thank you so much to Jeff and JC and Beowulf Jones, who produces the Risk Live show in Los Angeles, and so many other people who help us out in ways big and small to make this happen. Please spread the word because we're getting close to having a million downloads per month, and we really want to get over that hump. So let people know about Risk, folks. Subscribe, tell others to subscribe, and become a part of it all. Remember, anyone from anywhere in the world can go to risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us a story. We might record it, you know, one-on-one over Skype, or of course, there's our live shows coming up. Pittsburgh, that's on October 17th. The theme is terror. The pitch deadline is the 1st of October. Atlanta, that show is on November 6th. The pitch deadline is the 15th of October. The theme is monstrous. Albuquerque, that show is November 13th. The theme is when life is like porn. The pitch deadline is October 15th. And Seattle, we are in your town on the 12th of December. The theme is fucked up. And the pitch deadline is November 15th. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget, we are a Maximum Fun podcast, and we really do rely, very much so, on the financial assistance of those who really love what we do. We don't have a budget anywhere near what some of the storytelling shows that you might hear on NPR do. Not in the same ballpark not in the same galaxy. So if you love what we do, if you really love this place where you can get real, raw, uncensored storytelling, go to MaximumFun.org donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark it for risk. And don't forget, we have a storytelling school as well at thestorystudio.org. We teach corporate workshops, one-on-one training over Skype, and in-person workshops in New York and Los Angeles. Go to thestorystudio.org today and find out 
how we can help you with your communication, your creativity, your ability to connect in a meaningful and emotional way. Don't forget to come visit us at risk-show.com where you'll find the tables of contents of all the episodes, the links to the musicians and the storytellers' websites. Also, you'll find our shop there where you can buy the classic episodes that are no longer available on iTunes but have been remastered and had the ads removed. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And you can find me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. It's just a kind of love. Be careful, Joe. Be careful, Joe. You, you don't know what's behind that corner. I'm going to hug you, babe. It might not be Huggy Bear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell is Huggy Bear? Huggy Bear was on Starsky and Hutch like their, infor- their, their informant who was a pimp. <laughs>